Welcome again to the Springs. Uh, consider yourself part of the VIP crew. You are here, a part of the first indoor service in 2020. Come on. Never thought I would say that. It feels like it's been like five years since we've gathered inside. So this is so special. Thank you so much uh, for being here. And if it's your first time, uh, please don't mean any rest to leave. We would love to connect with you. Uh, I want to push that digital QR code that's in your seat back. You can pull out your phone app, scan it. It takes us to our webpage, and we want to connect with you. So let's dive into the Word. This week, we are in week three of our series through the book of Ephesians. Uh, This series is entitled God, the Church, and Everything in Between. If it sounds broad, it's because it is. Uh, When we go through the book of Ephesians, we see the author of this text covering dozens of different subjects. Uh, we've already covered quite a few. We've, we've talked about uh, purpose and what is God's will for our lives. And, and we discover that, that our purpose is actually wrapped up in living for Jesus and being in relationship with him. Uh, we've talked about spiritual blessings and election and adoption. And now this week we're about to cover two new subjects uh, as we dive into uh, Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 10. So last week, we made our way through verses 3 through 14. Now, if you remember, uh, this is one long sentence. Come on, long sentence writers. I'm with you right here. Um, I I just downloaded Grammarly because I need it, uh, because my sentences just go on and on and on. And so uh, me and Paul, we're we're cut from the same cloth. We just just can't stop. Um, And so he is caught up in this moment of worship. Uh, He is um, getting this revelation of God's wonderful beauty and grace and and how God's intricate hand is involved in this work of salvation and redemption, and and he just breaks out in worship. And so last week, we, we read the entire portion of Scripture, and what's interesting about it is that it's broken up into three parts, what's called Trinitarian praise. The, the first part is, is worshiping God the Father. The second part is worshiping God the Son. Uh, and the third part, God the Holy Spirit. And so this week, we're going to focus in on that second part as we talk about the Son and his work in redemption. And then next week, we'll talk about the Holy Spirit and close out chapter 1. So this morning, we're diving into verses 7 through 10. Uh, will you please stand with me to honor the reading of God's Word? Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. Shout out to everyone joining us on the, the live stream. Thank you so much for uh, waking up a little bit earlier to be with us. We're so thankful that you are a part of this family, and we believe that you are right here with us as we lift up the name of Jesus. So Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7 through 10. This is what it says. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and on earth. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Uh, With the remaining time that that we have together, I want to unpack two ideas, two truths that present themselves in this portion of Scripture, and it concerns the subject of redemption. The first truth is that we are redeemed 
from something. We are redeemed from something. The second one is we are redeemed for something. We are redeemed for something. So let's begin by diving into verse 7. We're going to read it all over again because the word of God is good. It says, in him, in Christ Jesus, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Now I want to spend some time uh, breaking down this word redemption. What is redemption and what exactly are, are we redeemed from? Um, and better yet, what does this idea of redemption have to do with you and me and the world that we live in? So let's break this down. There's actually a few ways to interpret this word, but they all essentially carry the same idea. Uh, the, this idea of redemption is, is redemption from uh, bondage or slavery, the Hebrew word is ga'al. It carries this idea that, that you're enslaved, you're in bondage to your enemy, and, and to be redeemed is to be liberated from that bondage, from that oppression. Uh, the most familiar example of this is found in Exodus uh, chapter 6, verse 6. This is what it says. Therefore, this is uh, the Lord speaking to Moses, say to them, to the people of Israel, I am the Lord. And I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will deliver you from slavery to them. This idea of redemption is is being brought out of something and into something. So they're being brought out of oppression and slavery and into relationship with God. They're being delivered from sin and transferred over into this new kingdom, this new way of living. And the Lord says, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgment. So the people of God, they were were slaves in Egypt. Uh, They were in captivity under the reign of Pharaoh. Uh, But most importantly, they were liberated from the judgment of sin by the blood of Passover lambs. So this idea of of redemption, when when we look at this first idea, it speaks to physical deliverance. Like you're, you're physically captive, you're in bondage, and you need to be rescued. A deliverance from pain, a deliverance from real life enemies, uh, from uh, all that is out there waging war against us. Redemption was also an ancient warfare practice. In other words, the victor, the winner in a battle would, would take prisoners and, and let the defeated nation or the people group know that they would release the prisoner on a payment of a price. This process was called redemption, and the price paid was a ransom. Another understanding of redemption found in the Old Testament is the redemption of persons or living things. Uh, the Old Testament sacrificial system was a system set in place that reminded the people of God that a price had to be paid in order to have redemption from their sins, in order to be set free from the bondage and enslavement they were experiencing to sin. And, and what's interesting to notice is that when, when we kind of view these three ideas, one is uh, deliverance from like this physical oppression. Another one is deliverance from this spiritual oppression. Another one is this idea uh, of being set free from your enemy and, and being bought back at a price. Uh, what's interesting to notice is that God is near. Uh, that God is not 
simply concerned with your spiritual well-being, but he's also concerned with your physical quality of life. He, he doesn't just deal with our sin, but he desires to deliver us from the opposing forces that inflict harm upon us as his image bearers in creation. You see, God is not only involved in the, the spiritual matters of our lives, he's involved in the physical parts of our lives. And, and he desires to liberate us, to free us from the world that seeks to oppress us and keep us in bondage and, and taint the image of God that we bear. So at the heart of this image or this idea of redemption is paying a price to regain something that will otherwise be lost. So this idea of redemption involves three aspects. One, the first one is bondage. There's a circumstance where a person must be freed and delivered. The second one is payment. There, there is a price that must be paid. There is a cost for this freedom. And the third, and this is the most important one, is a redeemer. A person taking the initiative to secure redemption, to liberate you and set you free. So now the question is, well, what do we need to be redeemed from? And what are we in bondage to? Well, let's dive into our first point. We are redeemed from something. What is this something? The short answer is sin. We need to be redeemed from sin. Why do we need to be redeemed? Because we are all in bondage to sin. We're all enslaved to sin. We're all captive to sin. Uh, the scripture says that, that we're captive to sin. Jesus says in John eight thirty four, and, and Jesus never gets it wrong. He says, uh, truly, truly, I say to you. He, double truly, that's a big deal right there. He says, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Jesus says that everyone who practices sin, who submits their life to sin, who gives their life over to sin, becomes a slave to that sin. And, and it's interesting because we live in, in, in a moment where we think to ourselves that, that we have mastery over our lives. Where we say things like, man, sin, sin doesn't dominate me. Sin doesn't have control over me. And yet that is what sin does is that it taints and disrupts our, our, our reality and our thinking. Because the reality is, is that sin does have control over you. Uh, sin is not like this um, dog that we walk on a leash. It's actually a lion just waiting to attack us and devour us. Sin is, is not our friend. Sin is not someone or something we can cohabitate with. Sin seeks to destroy and kill and steal all the goodness that God has given us and to disrupt this image of God inside of us. And sin is sneaky, uh, because uh, how do we think about sin? Well, it's, it's, it's the good stuff, it's the fun stuff, it's the stuff that, that brings us pleasure and happiness. And yet those are the things that we're enslaved to, because we need to experience pleasure and happiness. And when we don't have, we feel crippled or insecure or unsatisfied. We're enslaved and oppressed by sin. Now, I, I know that this isn't your favorite subject, um, or the most popular one to talk about, but we're going to talk about it uh, for that very reason. Uh, it is absolutely necessary that if we're going to build lives deeply rooted on the gospel, we need to have a correct understanding of sin or else we'll live superficial, shallow lives. 
and, and, and we'll think that we're doing great things for God, uh, but really we're just entertaining and cohabitating with sin because we've never really uh, developed a deep foundation for it. So what usually happens when I, when I mention this word sin is, is people immediately check out. I see you in the back. I'm just kidding. I'm not pointing at anyone. There's no one back there. Uh, just Jess Stevens. Shout out to Jess Stevens um, and everyone on the live stream. Um, people check out. You, you doze off uh, like, oh, there he goes talking about sin. He's, he's no different than brother so-and-so. Um, however, if I were to ask a dozen people or you were to ask a dozen people to tell you what sin is, you would get a, a dozen different definitions. Um, and half of them would be kind of off. You see, most definitions of sin that I hear mostly describe activities. Like sin is doing the bad stuff. Sin is doing all the wrong things. Sin is uh, doing what my neighbor does or or, or my roommate does. I don't do that stuff. Uh, We think of stuff like, I don't know, getting drunk or sleeping around or lying, cheating, breaking the rules. We kind of sum up sin as activity. Um, And for many people, that's what our understanding of sin boils down to. And although this isn't necessarily wrong, it goes much deeper. And so what I want to propose is is not a a new idea, it's an old idea, that sin is not simply doing the wrong thing. Sin is not simply the bad stuff. Sin is not just breaking the rules. Sin is not simply misbehavior. Sin is a worship disorder. Sin is a worship disorder. So let's break this down. Uh, what do I mean by worship? Everyday definition is, is to show reverence, to show adoration, uh, to, to give your praise and your awe to something, to aim your love and your heart, uh, to glorify and lift and make much of something or someone. And, and the reason why I bring this up is because this passage is all about worship. We, we, we just kind of broke this down. Paul, the author, breaks out into praise. He breaks out into worship, and he pins down 202 words. And so it is evident that the object of Paul's worship was the true and living God. But when we take a moment to reflect on our lives, and we're honest with ourselves, what is the object of worship in your life? What is the object of worship in your life? In your life, what would those closest to you say that you worship? Uh, What would they say that that you're passionate about, that you give your life and your love and your attention to, that that you lift up and make much of? Would they say, uh, that guy's sold out about Jesus, annoying about Jesus, Uh, I, I avoid him, or her when she leaves the house because I don't want to run into this person because they're all about Jesus? Uh, do you exude love and, and, and is Christ the object of your worship? Or are you passionate about someone or something else? You see, we are creatures, humans designed to worship. We are created to worship. We are created to aim our love and our attention and our adoration and our praise towards someone. Yet because of this internal brokenness that we all experience, because of our fractured connection to God, instead of aiming, instead of pointing, directing our love to God, giving him our attention, giving him our adoration, making much of him, We aim it, we point it, we direct it at something else. We give our worship to things like relationships, 
And that's where we aim and direct all of our focus and our love and our attention. To hobbies, to sports, to work, to career, to political figures and ideologies. We aim our hope and our attention and our love and our, and our adoration and we make much of those things. And, and I'm not saying that it's bad to be passionate. Praise God for passion. What I am saying is that none of these things will ever be worthy to be worshipped. You see, sin is not simply doing the wrong thing. Sin is not simply misbehavior. Sin is a worship disorder. It is a a practice of, of pursuing, worshiping, revering, adoring things or people that you think will ultimately satisfy you, complete you, fulfill you, make you whole. And, and what it boils down to is replacing God in your heart with something or someone else. And we all do this. There's not a day that goes by that we don't replace God in our hearts with with something or someone else. When our hearts are are more captivated or, or gravitate towards lesser things. And when we give our lives to living that way, We'll experience all sorts of um, spiritual and ethical dilemmas, all sorts of uh, brokenness and division internally and externally. And, and what God does in, in his grace and his kindness is that he's constantly calling us back, presenting us opportunities and, and saying, hey, me, put me on, on the throne of your heart. Make me the object of your worship and, and watch how I can uh, fulfill you and meet all your needs and, and complete you and give you what you're looking for in this thing, in this person, in this career, in this hobby, can be found uh, eternally in me. You see, humans um, are experts at idolatry. Uh, humans, my, myself included, uh, are exceptional uh, at taking good things in creation and making them the object of our worship. Things like relationships, sex, work, financial provision, all these things that are gifts from God and substituting them for the creator. And, and when that happens, when you, when you turn a good thing into a God thing, the Bible calls this idolatry. And idols make a terrible God. And we do this because we believe that freedom and happiness and peace is wrapped up in the pursuit of those things. But in reality, we are being enslaved to them. Sin is a worship disorder. The misbehavior, doing the wrong things, comes after the worship problem starts. Now, what does this have to do with our passage of Scripture? Well, in the ancient city of Ephesus, if you have a Bible, you can flip it over to the very back. You'll see a colorful map, and, and there you'll see Ephesus is somewhere in Asia Minor. Um, uh, this was a city that had a terrible worship disorder problem. In fact, there were multiple objects of worship. There was a temple for the Greek god Diana. Uh, people worshipped the emperor. There were pagan gods like Isis, Abel, Dionysus, and 50 other deities that were being worshipped in this city. And the idea was, is that, is that if you align your, uh, is that if you were dealing with a certain life issue, if, that, if there was something that you were struggling with, infertility, financial provision, uh, doubt, insecurity, uh, you name it. If you were dealing with something, there was a God that could fix that problem. 
And the idea was that you could go to that certain God, you could, you could go to that temple uh, or to that tent or to that area of town that, that worshiped and revered that God, and, and, and you could go and find what they called deliverance and freedom from that issue. This was a city that had a rampant worship disorder. And hundreds of thousands of people looking for freedom and deliverance by aligning and giving themselves to a lesser deity, to a lesser God that promised to free them and deliver them. Now, we don't do this, right? San Marcos is not like that. Of course, we, we don't bow down to false gods. But, but here's a question. Where do you go to find freedom and deliverance? Where do you go to find freedom from the stress of work? Are you bowing down to the idol of Netflix and one more glass of wine and one more can of beer? Are you bowing down to these earthly pleasures to find freedom from stress and pain? Where do you find freedom from the weight of anxiety? Where do you find freedom from the fear of loneliness? Are you bowing down to another relationship, to another person that you think will complete you and make you feel whole? Where do you find freedom? Where do you find hope from fear of the future? Is it in a person? Bowing down to a political figure? Aligning yourself with a certain lifestyle that you think will bring security? And what Paul is reminding this, this, this group that is, that is wrapped up in really deep-rooted magic arts and idol practices, that he's saying that the freedom and the deliverance and the security that you're looking for is actually found not in the worship of lesser deities, but actually in the worship of God. Like, that simple. Worshiping and loving God praising God, giving your life to God, directing your heart and your attention towards him. And Paul says that it's mysterious because when you do that, you experience freedom and you experience power. Why? Because you're experiencing the life of God when you worship God. And God is full of peace, full of security, full of provision, full of stability full of hope and future. The worship of God brings freedom. So, so sin is not simply misbehavior. Sin is a worship disorder. And if you only view sin as misbehavior, you will get caught up in a life of never-ending sin management. And so what this means is that you'll, you'll live a life avoiding doing the wrong things. And, and you'll probably get really good at it too. You'll avoid uh, going to this part of town, doing this thing on this night, uh, taking this or doing that. I mean, you, you know what you'll avoid. And, and as long as you view sin as simply misbehavior, you'll never deal with the true motivator. You'll never address the idol in your heart that is telling you that if you give your life to this, if you practice this lifestyle, if you do this thing, everything will be better. And although the heart is a fragile thing, it's not an innocent thing. And, and, and what I've noticed about my heart is that it doesn't pursue random things. It, it pursues specific things. Things that I, I feel will, will give me happiness, peace, and joy, and a feeling of purpose. Things that will distract me from the worship of God. 
the misbehavior, doing the wrong things comes after the worship problem starts. So this is what we need to be redeemed from. This is what we need to be rescued from. Uh, The destructive and seductive nature of sin and its allure over our lives. And this is what Christ comes to set us free from. Now, what's so amazing is is that we're not only redeemed from something. We're not just set free from sin. We are redeemed and set free for something. And there's two specific things in this text that I want to address. The first one is that we are redeemed for union. Redeemed for union. We are redeemed for union with Christ. And and only through your union with Jesus can you experience true freedom. You see, remember that, that redemption means liberation from slavery. But there's a price that has to be paid. The three aspects of redemption. We're in bondage, a price has to be paid, and there has to be a redeemer, someone who takes the initiative to set us free. Because we can't set ourselves free. I don't care how clever you are, how witty you are, you are in bondage to sin, and there's nothing in your own power to set you free from the thing that you enslaved yourself to. And in fact, the scripture says that the more we attempt to set ourselves free, the more enslaved we become to sin. And Jesus, in his death, served as the ransom, as the price to liberate us from this condition. And without Jesus, we continue to live disordered lives and in bondage to sin. So Christ has shed blood, and this blood has paid the price to secure your forgiveness to secure your new life and your liberty. We have redemption. I love that Paul says we have redemption. He doesn't say that that we're getting redemption. He doesn't say that redemption is coming. No, he says that redemption has been secured, that we have it, that we have been fully freed and delivered from the brokenness and depression and chaos that we experience internally. Paul says that we have this. Do you believe this? Do you believe that God has made available for you right now freedom and deliverance and healing from the chaos and the brokenness and the disordered and and divisive uh, brokenness that consumes us? Paul says that that we have it. And and, and what the enemy will try to do is, is lie to us and tell us that we have to go get it. That you have to go on this magic quest You have to do X, Y, and Z, reach these certain checkpoints, climb this mountain of faith, live this certain way in order for you to secure and have this lifestyle. But Paul says that that we have it. He doesn't say, here's what you do to get it. He simply says, you have it. Church, do you believe this? Do you believe that, that this is your portion, that this is your inheritance, that you are fully free, fully alive, fully healed? And now our lives don't become about trying to search for freedom, but about believing this and becoming all that God has called us to be. This act of redemption has already taken place. We do not need to hope for it. We already have it. The author, uh, same author puts it this way in Colossians chapter 1, verses 13 through 14. He has rescued us from the domain of darkness. 
every single person in here apart from Christ uh, either uh, was in the domain of darkness or without Jesus, you're in that domain of darkness. And, 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 and Jesus didn't put you there. You, you kind of led yourself there. You willingly chose to live in this place of darkness by living disconnected lives and, and living a, a lifestyle of practicing sin. But it says that Jesus went into that place and he rescued you. And um, for, for some of us, it was very graceful, like, all right, walk with me. We're coming over here now. For others, you came in kicking and screaming. There's some of you that are still kicking and screaming, but come on. He has rescued you, and, and he's transferred you from, from this domain to this new kingdom, the kingdom of the son that he loves. And in this kingdom, uh, we're, we're given the ability to, to live and walk as God has called us to live. God has rescued us. God has transferred us. God has paid the price and the question is, well, how did he pay this price? Verse 7 says that, that through his blood we have deliverance. So the question is, that, well, how is this freedom possible? The end of verse 7 and the first part of verse 8 helps explain, explain how this is possible. It says, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight. This grace is the reason why we can experience redemption and forgiveness. This grace is not an idea or a concept. It is an actual thing. It's something that God has poured out and lavished upon all his people. God is abundantly wealthy in grace. And there is an unlimited supply of grace in God's economy. In fact, the Greek word that Paul uses for lavish literally means overflowing. But, but it's, it's not like this idea of like, you know, pouring coffee into your mug or, or, or getting water from the fridge and getting distracted and it begins to overflow. No, it's, it's a billion times that. The idea here is that your life is like a red solo cup. And God lavishing you with grace is the equivalent of pouring the entirety of the earth's water into that one red plastic cup all at once. And he doesn't do it in just one small portion. He does it all at once. He lavishes you with grace upon grace upon grace uh, to the fact that it's, that it's overwhelming, it's glorious, it's weighty, it's, it's indescribable. Grace upon grace upon grace that he's lavishing you with. And, and this grace is sufficient enough to drown out all sin and wash away all guilt and shame that plague us. Just all at once, grace upon grace. And there is no abundant, there there is an abundant amount of grace that is capable of covering and reaching the most broken and far off from God. All of our sins have been completely pardoned in Christ. I believe somebody needs to be reminded of this truth. When you place your faith in Jesus and you give your life to him, every single sin is forgiven. And he's just lavishing you with grace, pouring out grace upon grace upon grace. And this grace is coming all at once and he's showering you with it. And there's just not a moment or a breath in you that can say, God, I'm not worthy of this. 
that God, this is not for me because you are being drowned in it. You can't even speak your own testimony because it's not your testimony. It's the testimony of Jesus. Lavishing grace upon grace. Every single sin is forgiven. Now, if grace explains how this redemption is possible, then then verses 9 and 10 explain Uh, and reveal the motivation. God has lavished grace upon all of us in all wisdom and insight, verse 8 and 9, making known to us the mystery of his will according to the purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in heaven and things on earth. So Paul reiterates this idea that we covered last week, that it it was a good thing, that it brought God pleasure and delight to take your life into consideration to read the biography of your life, to watch the documentary and say, I'll just put that aside and choose you. That, that he took everything you would ever do into consideration, put it to the side and said, I'm going to choose you because you're mine and because I love you. And so Paul is reiterating this idea that redemption was done on the basis of his good pleasure. That this grace that has been lavished upon us, that, that once, separate, once we were separated from God, now grace has washed away and we're drowning in his ocean of forgiveness. Now we are redeemed for union and we can experience union with the living God. The second thing that we are redeemed for is unity. We are redeemed for union and we're redeemed for unity. You see, God is, uh, we're going to dive into this idea in the the next coming weeks as we approach chapters two and three, but God is creating a new humanity. God is creating a new humanity that is unified around the person of Jesus. And this new humanity, this new family is modeled after the original family, the first community, the, the community of the Trinity, you see, in Christ, when you, when you come into union with Jesus, you do not become an isolated individual. That is contrary to the gospel. It is in direct opposition to the work of God. You cannot, be, you cannot claim union in Christ and then live a life of isolation. Because union in Christ moves you towards the direction of people. Because that's the direction that God's moving in, is towards community and family. And so in Christ, we are united to him and we become united to his universal family. And the biggest obstacle to this unity is sin, our bondage to sin. Sin disrupts and divides, it fractures and disconnects, it creates division, not only in the body of Christ, but internally in our souls and in our hearts, we find ourselves conflicted and divided. And we see this play out externally. A divided nation, divided families, broken relationships. Why? Because of a worship disorder. Because we've made the wrong thing the object of our worship. And God, he calls us to to lay our lives down for the love of our neighbor and for the unity of the body. And, And this is difficult. This is hard. Because we give our lives to our preferences to, our, uh, to a lifestyle that, that we believe will fulfill us and we worship those things and we fight for those things and we labor for those things and anybody that stands in direct opposition, we cut them out of our lives. And we do this at the expense of friends and family and loved ones. 
And the scripture makes it clear that the solution to a divided heart and a divided family and even a divided nation is the worship of God in redeemed humans. And as we take our eyes off of ourselves and we set them on God, we see clearer. And we're empowered to live as God has called us to live. It's in that place that in union with Christ and and being in unity with his family, when we set our eyes on him and off of ourselves, that, that we're liberated to mourn with those who mourn. We're empowered to suffer with those who suffer, to rejoice with those who rejoice. And my conflicted heart has been redeemed, is being restored, and worship helps reset and reorient my heart toward the will of God. And the will of God is, God's plan is to unite all things. Not just some things, all things. Things in heaven and on earth and bring it under the lordship of Christ. So what does this mean for us today? If you're a follower of Jesus, remember your redemption. Remember that you were once in bondage. A price had to be paid. And a redeemer came in, stepped into the, the domain of darkness that you occupied and transferred you to a better way of living. And you didn't do anything to deserve this. You didn't even escort yourself out. It was fully the grace of God that has been lavished upon you. Remember his redemption. We're called to continually remember the deliverance from slavery on a continual basis because when we forget, we're prone to slip back into the thing that God has delivered us from. Friends, family, if you feel prone to slip back into something that God has delivered you from, remember your redemption. Worship God. Second, you have been redeemed from something. Waste no time figuring out how to put yourself back together and how to become something. Put all of your energy and all of your effort into your union with Christ, into your relationship with God, and watch how he transforms you and watch how you become someone, the person he's called you to be. We are not redeemed from something We are redeemed for someone. We are redeemed not just from something. We are redeemed for something. We are redeemed for union with Christ and to live in unity with this church and partner with him in unifying all things. So I want to close with this question as as we come to the table and prepare our hearts for communion. Is there a part of your heart that needs liberation? Is there a part of your life that, that is seeking freedom? And are you, are you trying to find it by, by bowing down to a lifestyle, an idea, or a practice other than God? Jesus invites you to come to the table. He has bought your freedom, secured your victory, and he lavishes you with grace upon grace. So as you prepare your heart for communion... Ask yourself, what needs to be emptied in order to give way for God's grace to overflow and overwhelm you? And as we remember Christ, let us remember this redemption. So on the night that Jesus was betrayed and handed over to be...